How do entrepreneurial businesses deal with the intense complexity of today's marketplaces? They don't recoil from complexity. They adapt to it and harness it. This is the Economics for Business podcast. We are here to help all businesses become champions for customers and value, improving lives with preferred and innovative products and services. We offer you the knowledge and tools to make your entrepreneurial journey a successful one. Now, here's your host, Hunter Hastings. Hi, Hunter Hastings here. As we build our economics for business bridge from economic theory and research to business applications, we aim to bring you all the latest and best thinking. Steve Phelan, who's with us today, has guided us and given us suggestions in the fields of artificial intelligence and machine learning. And he's back today to talk about another new field of research, complexity theory. In entrepreneurial economics, complexity theory is just another term for the Austrian view. The economy is a system with many subsystems, continually in flux on the basis of changing consumer preferences, changing entrepreneurial combinations of capital and resources, changing prices, continuous improvement in value propositions, changing competitive capabilities, technological advance, turbulent knowledge flows, and hard to interpret market signals. All change, all the time. How is an entrepreneur to manage in such a system? Well, a lot of the answer is, don't manage. Don't even try. Management is the method we used to use before complexity theory. The key words in harnessing complexity are strategies, interactions, performance measures, selection combination, and recombination. A strategy is nothing noble or perfected. It's just a means to your business's end, and you should have lots of them because you can't know which strategies will work. You set them in motion and unleash the interaction of employees, customers, suppliers, channels, prices, technologies, value propositions, value experiences, and value assessments, and you measure performance. Did you make any progress towards your goal? If yes, select that strategy for repetition. If no, abandon it and experiment with the next one or the next group. Keep combining and recombining strategies and resources in the search for progress or for what we're going to call today a peak, a peak in the rugged, dancing landscape of the complex adaptive system in which you're operating. Let's find out more from Steve Phelan. Steve is the Distinguished Professor of Entrepreneurship at Fayetteville State University, part of the UNC system. He's led centers of innovation and entrepreneurship at a number of universities. He's the author of Startup Stories, a book we featured on this podcast, and he's been an executive in the U.S. airlines industry, a complex system in its own right. Steve, welcome to the Economics for Business podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here again. Well, it's nice to have you back. We've just rechristened ourselves Economics for Business, but the same great content as I, I tell people. And you've been a tremendous source of good content to us, a great help to entrepreneurs everywhere. You've especially helped us integrate advanced concepts like artificial intelligence and machine learning into our entrepreneurial thinking. And today you're going to help us with another leading edge topic, which we call complexity theory. And uh, just for context, 
your, prof your friend Professor Todd Childs defined Austrian economics as a strand of complexity theory. So we'll find out a little bit about that today. But our job is to help entrepreneurs. And we're going to ask you to explain how a knowledge of complexity theory helps them. Uh, there's a book um, called Harnessing Complexity. So we might see if we can uh, go in that direction, harness the complexity. But let's start with the theory part first. You have a paper, one of many in this area that you've written, titled The Complexity of Opportunity. And you characterize entrepreneurship as the search for peaks on a fitness landscape. And those peaks can represent opportunity, I think, if I get it right. But let's start there. Tell us about complexity theory and what is a fitness landscape. Yeah, thanks, Hunter. Uh, happy to do so. So the idea of a fitness landscape actually came from biology. So listeners may be familiar with the fact that we have genes that uh, express themselves in individuals and that genes can come in different combinations through sexual reproduction. So we're constantly sampling on our gene pool, if you like. And some individuals are going to be fitter than other individuals, the basic premise behind evolution. And obviously, there's also random mutation that goes in there as well. So we're constantly uh, assembling and reassembling our genetic uh, material into new versions of our cell, which are then tested in the environment. So if you can imagine every possible genetic combination laid out on a map, a fitness landscape just says some of those com uh, combinations are going to be fitter than others. Or in other words, the payoff, the return, the reward of having that combination is going to be higher than some other combination. So often we talk about peaks, we talk about valleys. So peaks are where you have a good combination. You're up in the peak area. Often peaks are correlated together. So uh, better combinations can be found in one area of the landscape than another. And then you could talk about valleys where you're not, not having very good outcomes from what you're trying. So from biology, this has moved across into economics and business to say, Perhaps businesses can be thought of trying new combinations of resources, processes, procedures, personnel, uh, activities, if you like. Uh, so, And different businesses obviously have different outcomes. And so what we're interested in is how can we find better combinations that lead to higher peaks or, if you put it in business talk, higher profits, higher returns, uh, and so forth, more economic value. So, so hopefully that's a nice little introduction to how it works. Um, but what makes it then even more complicated is we can't just look over this landscape and see where the highest peaks are because sometimes we have limited perspective on what's going to work. So until we actually try a particular genetic combination, we're not really sure if it's going to work. We know it may have worked in the past, but conditions change. So as the environment changes, obviously different genetic combinations are going to be more and less successful over time. And so the same idea extends to business as competition shapes the landscape, as new technologies arise, what was fit in one period of time may not be fit in the future. And often we can't see how that's going to evolve until we actually try things. Uh, on top of that, it's constantly moving, constantly changing, and very hard to see into that future. So we talk about that as a a veiled and dancing fitness landscape. So it's not a fixed space that just stays there forever like a mountain range. The mountain range is actually deforming itself over time. 
And the difference between um, the biology that you described, the uh, genetic combinations and the entrepreneurial combinations, uh, at least one dimension is different is speed, right? It, it feels like in entrepreneurship that changing landscape is changing at speed, not, not in uh, biological eons. Correct. So we have evolutionary time, but we sort of have economic time, don't we? Then it seems to move a lot faster. Right. So the, the, the metaphor of the dancing fitness landscape and entrepreneurs searching around this landscape, looking for a, a peak, which might be a niche or a sweet spot or a place where you said uh, we can find higher profits. It changes over time. It's not clearly visible. That sounds formidably challenging as a, as a task for an entrepreneur. Uh, so there seems to be a ton of obstacles. Is that, is that the picture you're painting here? This is really hard? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, we're, we're trying to look for strategies for how to explore this landscape when we can't actually see what's going on. Another way of thinking about it is like the early explorers when they encountered the Rocky Mountains or the Sierra Nevadas. You know, they, they saw these cloud-shrouded, misty peaks, and it really wasn't clear how to get through that mountain range, how to get to the highest peak, because as you started climbing hills, you'd run into valleys and so forth. So people had to learn over time how best to navigate through that environment. And of course, in geological time, these mountain ranges are rising and falling, but in human scale time, that's not happening. So extending that to business, you know, we're, we're trying to find that sweet spot, as you said, where we get the highest profit from our business in a situation where the peak is moving all the time and in reaction to competition and what others are doing as well as environmental uh, factors. And yeah. so, yes, it is challenging. One of the thoughts that comes to my mind, Steve, as you think about that mental model is that uh, – Things like plans, business plans, strategic plans, even a business lean business canvas uh, doesn't seem to fit the the situation that's constant change, dynamism, always moving. Planning doesn't seem to fit that idea. Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting uh, thought to think, what does this mean for a plan? So if you really cannot see where the peaks are and you really can't see the path to get there, what does it mean to tell people that you have a plan? And uh, because, you know, it's clearly just based on guesswork at best or, you know, uh, an educated guess maybe. Uh, Carl Weick, who was a famous organization theorist, said maybe just having a plan is a way to get people to act and just strike out in some direction rather than sit around and just be paralyzed uh, with what to do. But it certainly means that plans are subject to revision. Plans are often going to be wrong. The further out that you try and plan, obviously, the more likely the landscape will have shifted between the time you made the plan to when you're trying to execute. Uh, some people in the entrepreneurship space say that no plan survives first contact with the customer. Mm -hmm. this is, uh, Steve Blank's view. And so uh, at the ultimate extreme, people will just rip up the plan and just say, just try stuff and see what works. You know, that's, that's sort of the extreme uh, that you can take this to if you really believe that you can't know anything. Yeah. You introduced another concept there, another um, vector or dimension, which is the customer. What's the customer doing in this landscape, Steve? So ultimately, uh, you know, the value is flowing from the customer. They're the one that has to want to buy your product. And so in a sense, you're searching for the sweet spot of what the customer values in the first instance. And so they play a critical role. 
of course, the customers also searching for their own payoff in their own fitness landscape, if you like, of the product world that they live in. Uh, you know, they're maybe not always doing the most vigorous search. We're creatures of habit, of course, but if somebody's dissatisfied with what where they're at with their, you know, products that they're using in their life, they're going to do a search, just like a business might start to search their landscape to find to find a better solution. So customers have their own fitness landscapes and obviously they're correlated what the, with what the business is trying to do. So the business is trying to track the customer's movements as well and trying to be meet the customer where they're going to be. So so they're not the same landscape, but they're definitely related there. Do they, do they meet on the peak? Do If I find a customer need and I, I am able to design a solution for it, is metaphorically, have I met the customer on the same peak? Well, I, I wouldn't go as far as to say they're the same landscapes, but they sort of, they overlap, if you like. So a customer peak where they're very happy with the product is also very likely going to be the peak where I'm happy uh, providing that product to them. I'm certainly maximizing the value created. Uh, one thing we have to talk about, of course, though, is the value that we capture from that value creation. So, it, you know, it's no point talking about creating lots of value for the customer if there's not enough to pay my bills in the business and I don't mm -hmm. make a profit at the end of the day. So, uh, customers are happy to take things for free, you know, and there's a lot of examples in the tech space. You know, we do Google searches for free, for example, and everyone loves that. But at some point, there has to be a monetization to keep the lights on for the business and to get a return for the shareholders. So it's it's not simply just about giving the customer everything they want. Right. So there's another word that um, we use, and maybe it's a different metaphor, but you you covered it in the paper, which is opportunity. Mm -hmm. And there's a big debate about whether opportunities really exist or whether they're just subjective. Uh, acts of imagination on the entrepreneur's part. But uh, can we think of opportunities being peaks? We're, we're searching for a peak. That's an economic opportunity that we're, we're, we're trying to pursue. Yeah, I, I absolutely think that trying to find higher peaks of, and better combinations of your resources to give yourself better returns is almost like the very definition of what an opportunity means. Uh, of course, there's that distinction between the subjective of where I think a peak is versus actually putting the resources in place and seeing, you know, exhibiting a market test and seeing if that's really where the peak is. Uh, and with the proviso, of course, that peaks can disappear over time. So, so there's a lot to unpack there in terms of what what exactly we mean by an opportunity. And yeah. so a quick note. Did you know that we provide supplemental materials for each podcast? Listening to and understanding the key takeaways from our expert guests helps you think better about building a more beautiful business. Taking direct action and implementing these strategies is when the real work begins. Take a concrete, immediate step to implementing a better business model today by downloading the show notes and business tool we've created for this episode. Visit Mises.org slash E4BPod. That's M-I-S-E-S dot -E org slash E, the number four, the letter B, P-O-D. And click on today's episode. Now, back to our interview. And then this whole idea of, of combinations, let's go a little bit deeper into that. So uh, I think 
what you were implying in your paper was that some ways of getting to new combinations can be fairly simple and quick. Others can be uh, long and tortuous and extremely complex, to use that that word again. Uh -huh. um, so tell us a little bit more about combinations and, and, and the different kinds of them and the different payoffs. How do you think about combinations? Well, I, I think about it in terms of business assets, if you like. So the, the physical capital, the human capital, uh, intellectual property, the, the resources, the capabilities within an organization, the network, the people that I can access. It's basically everything that I can bring to bear on solving this particular problem for the customer that's going to generate a return. So financial capital is in there as well. Um, there's arguments in the literature about whether it's possible to specify all possible inputs to a business or not. But, you know, here we're operating at the level of metaphor to think that we have an ability as the owner or the entrepreneur to tweak the way we do things. And so certainly pricing is something that, you know, you can play around with every day, if you like. And uh, certainly uh, early in my career, I worked in an airline as a competitive analyst. And one of the things we did was download all of the pricing changes every day, three times a day, run it through a database and see what was different and then react to that and decide if we needed to tweak our prices as well. And so that's a very simple example in one, three times a day, we're adjusting the pricing of all of our different strategies. These days, I guess, with artificial intelligence, you could design an algorithm that would do that in real time and be constantly checking price changes. We also looked at aircraft changes and when our competitor switched out a smaller aircraft for a larger aircraft and, you know, what does this mean for our capacity on that route and so forth. So, so we were doing that, uh, you know, constantly and the same thing happens in a larger context, you know, uh, do we need to add more city pairs into the airline? Do we need to add different plane types? Do, what's going on with our pilots and the training? What's the brand image look like? You know, there's so many different variables that you can be experimenting and tweaking constantly to, to try and keep yourself relevant to the market. Yeah, that's a great picture, actually, of the um, airline network travel constantly changing, constantly uh, adjusting to competitive and other inputs. That's a great Great. Uh, so, you know, there's visual. weather, there's plane outages, you could have a, a strike, you could have a part failure, an aircraft could break down that you have to put something else into place. So, so there's always something where you're problem solving it. And, and we're going beyond that to tweaking to sort of optimize and can we make this system more efficient. Uh, and so in terms of time horizons, as I said, we're doing pricing is happening in real time or three times a day at that time. And I was also involved in fleet planning where we were making decisions about aircraft purchases looking 15 to 20 years into the future. Yeah. So, you know, that you know, the scale of how you do these experiments and thinking can vary widely. I, I just want to add one more word into this uh, conceptual discussion, then we'll, we'll move to the practical side. And that's, that's the word imagination. So we, we talk a lot about imagination being the great weapon of the entrepreneur, if you can imagine something in the future that, that makes sense to you, then you can put the combinations together to get there. Uh, does that fit this, this metaphor of the dancing landscape, Steve? Can imagination be one of our tools to help us navigate it? 
Yeah, absolutely. I believe that. And, uh, you know, like I said, uh, you, parts of the landscape can be difficult to perceive. But what we haven't mentioned is that different people might have different perspectives on the same landscape. So clearly, if I'm looking over the Rocky Mountains and I'm standing on the highest peak, I'm going to have a much better view of the layout of the land than somebody who's sitting in the middle, at the bottom of a valley. Uh, and so, if we think about the same metaphor applying to different people's life experience, their work experience, maybe they know more about a technology or they know more about what customers want or they know more about the particular marketplace that they're operating in than somebody who hasn't had that unique set of experiences and life course, if you like. So um, some some writers have talk, talked about this as knowledge corridors that we're each in our own little knowledge corridor as a result of our education and our work experience and our psychology even our biology and so as a result where if somebody is going to look at the same landscape every single person is going to see something different and so often you know entrepreneurs are able to perceive an opportunity because they they see things could be done in a different way and maybe they are seeing something that others are not seeing and so that's that active imagination to say, why do we have to be doing things this way? Why can't we go and do it this other way? And they go out and try that and they try and solve that problem and come up with a new combination. So think of Elon Musk as a classic example of Tesla, right, and just trying to get that electric car concept to work. And there are a lot of naysayers who said, you know, what you're trying to do is impossible, but uh, seems to be working pretty well for him right now. Time will tell whether he's got that sweet spot or he's, he's honed in on where he needs to be. Right. But he's certainly taking that bet and, and putting money and action into place to, to realize that imagined view of the future, if you like. So we don't all have to agree, I guess, is the thing. Everyone's going to have a different perspective. Yeah, right. Yeah, but you've got to bring those two things together if uh... – if you're either trying to convince your investors or you're trying to convince your partners or you're trying to convince your your customers, you, you've got to bring those uh, perspectives together at some point. Mm -hmm. and, and it's interesting. Some people have said that's why entrepreneurs exist, the sort of maverick uh, inventors in the garage that can't convince anyone and they're just like, I'm just going to go out and prove you wrong, right? History is replete with examples like that. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, so even having to convince other people may not be a necessary condition uh, if you have your own personal funds to, to see your vision through. Of course, not everyone does. And uh, as enterprises get larger in scale, it becomes more difficult. But that's certainly been a pattern. Well, let's see if we can switch over to uh, the practical side, what this means for entrepreneurs running businesses. and especially how they can utilize complexity in a positive way. Um, so you and I did a little preparation for this, and, and the headline for strategy one, an action path you can take, is you think you see a peak and you think you see how to get there. Right. Um, so let's paint the picture of an entrepreneur in, in that situation, Steve. Yeah, so in this case, uh, you know, even if other people are not seeing the opportunity, you you have a strong vision of where the future is going to be, where the customer is going to be, how you're going to solve that customer need, and how to go about doing that. And so it's all about the execution, then, right? So I think I've identified that need and how to meet it, uh, and I'm going to go out and execute that. So. So one thing I would caution people about is just, you know, humility is an important thing. So one piece that we know from the research is entrepreneurs tend to be overconfident relative to the general population. So 
you know, take that vision with a grain of salt. Maybe, maybe there is a peak there. <laughs> maybe there's not. And so, uh, um, so you've got to move quickly to to make to realize that, right? So, because we know peaks are going to change, they can deform. Opportunities are not going to last there forever. Uh, it's important to act on that as quickly as you can. Um, so, I think it is possible for people to see something that others don't as a result of experience or background or knowledge. And certainly, um, from Mises, when he talked about human action, talked about some business people having more uh, insight, a qualitative uh, skill, if you like, that was hard to tell other people about, but certainly something that could lead to profit. So, so that's one thing to bear in mind that this can happen, that you can see that opportunity. Um, but of course, you can be wrong, and so you've got to be prepared to pivot or change quickly uh, if that's the case. Um, there's evidence uh, from some research that entrepreneurs are more likely to be wrong than right in these sort of situations. So, um, so once again, you have to be prepared to to adjust your course as you go along while you're making that big bet. Uh, well, when you when you talk about the dancing landscape, it sounds to me like the likelihood is always that you're going to be wrong. It's a matter of how quickly you find out. I mean, everything else being equal, is competition is not going to go away, right? So if you come, you've come up with the next great thing, then there's going to be other people piling onto that. And uh, I was actually talking to someone today about uh, innovation. And, uh, you know, there's a company in, in Europe called Rocket uh, Internet that actually looks for new business models in the US and companies that have that locate a successful business model, and then they clone it in Europe before the U.S. company has a chance to expand it. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's their business model. So, you know, in a biological sense, there it's almost parasitical, right? And, yeah. Uh, uh, so they're letting you do the heavy lifting and then riding on that. Uh, another another uh, colleague of mine told me that Lyft, starting in Texas, uh, started with the ride sharing before Uber, but then a lot of Silicon Valley VC firms funded Uber to try and overtake them. So there's certainly fast followers out there that uh, are going to try and take advantage of new combinations that appear to be successful. So even everything else being equal, uh, you know, there's going to be competition that's going to be nipping at your heels all the time. Um, so. That's not to say that you're passive in this notion of creating a peak. It's it's possible to create your own peak with how you run things. So uh, just the way you organize your resources together, if you're able to inspire people or motivate people, that could be your secret source that's creating that peak for you and something you're doing better than what others are doing. Steve Jobs comes to mind here and his ability to um, excite people at Apple to to great heights and so forth. Um, so, so it's not just that you're passive here, that the peak is out there that you have to find it. You can also play a role in building up a peak as well and, and yeah. assembling resources in clever ways. Well, th that's very attractive. The idea of, of creating your own peak and some parts of the literature, Steve, talk about, and you, you suggested this with, uh, with jobs and Apple, that culture is one way that you can create your own peak. If a firm has a distinctive culture, that the teamwork is really good, that the shared attitude towards the mission is really tight, that in effect is a peak. Nobody else can reproduce that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So it makes it difficult for competitors to copy, particularly if they can't see what the source of your advantage is. They don't know what you're doing inside the company to create that experience. 
Uh, so yeah, you can you can defend peaks, you can create peaks over time, uh, but you know nothing stands still. So Southwest Airlines is a classic example where they were lauded for their culture, but as the airline grew, it was you know a major challenge to keep that family environment that they created when they were small. So uh, even when things are working really well and are difficult for others to copy, there's still going to be these challenges to maintain contact and, and use the resources in the best way. Yeah. Now, the, the flip side of I can see the peak is somebody else can see it better than I can or more clearly, or they have a different peak that's better than mine, or um, you yep, put it yep. as some people might have a better view than others. <laughs> let's <laughs> let's uh, think about that that concept. What do I... If I find well, how do I find out if somebody has a better view, and then what do I do? Well, they're they're going to be uh, outperforming you, you know, on whatever metric that you're comparing yourself with, whether it's profits or revenue growth or clicks or visits to their website or whatever it is that you're choosing to do. And and often it can be difficult to figure out what are they doing differently. But sometimes they have a completely different business model to you. And, uh, and one of the sort of um, insights from this approach is that you can be on multiple peaks you know you don't all have to be on the same highest peak you you know just like there are niches in biology you can find your niche and and you can survive pretty well there uh, so i'm not suggesting that uh, there's always just one peak that you have to aim for and we don't all have to be an apple or a, a tesla or something like that but uh even in your local environment, though, you need to be constantly searching to make sure that you found something that's sustainable. And that comes back to this notion of how quickly does the peak change over time. So sometimes the landscape changes very slowly, other times it changes very quickly. And so the implications for how you should run your organization vary by that rate of change as well. So, uh, you know, at the very least, you need to be constantly fine-tuning your approach so you don't drift off a peak, even if the landscape is fairly stable. But in uh, high-velocity environments that you constantly see in the tech world, for example, uh, you have, maybe you have to have a completely different set of strategies. So uh, others have written about this. Eisenhart and Brown wrote about having a pacing strategy and used Intel as an example where they uh, set a timeline to release a chip. Every six months, they had to come up with a new chip. Mm -hmm. That was a way of just driving them to stay in touch with the marketplace and to be constantly innovating and constantly changing so that they didn't lose their edge. Yeah, um, the other part of that strategy, which I recall, is that uh, it also bound in their customers to a certain extent. So mm -hmm. if Intel published that roadmap saying, here's what you can expect six months from now, um, their collaborators in the hardware business, their customers in the in the business world, got onto that same pathway, and it, it kind of locked them into the future in, in a certain way. Yeah, so it's it's a way of sort of creating an ecosystem around yourself in that sense as well. So you're sort of creating your own environment, at least in the micro sense, around you, so that everyone is on the same page about where things are headed. Everyone's on the same peak. On the same peak, and and the tempo is the same for you know your suppliers and your distributors and so forth. They know what to expect, and yeah. so that's lowering the costs of having to communicate the transaction costs, if you like. And biotech, we see a different strategy where they basically let a whole bunch of startups try new new uh, drugs or new uh, solutions uh, 
biotech solutions and then mm-hmm. they buy the winner, right? So they'll acquire them and, and mass produce the drug if it's a successful treatment or something like that so that uh, they're letting the risk be borne by others and then uh, waiting to see where the dust settles. So uh, tech yes, market- that makes sense. Like let let others do the uh, the search for the peak, and then we'll when they find it, we'll we'll grab it. Yeah. So uh, you know, and on on balance, you know, the the company that gets acquired, the founders become very wealthy, and that's what provides the incentive. But it's it's a little bit like a lottery, right? And uh, you're all searching in different directions to try and find this peak, and somebody finds it, and somebody doesn't. So it's almost like a gold rush in a way. Where somebody finds the right mine and finds them, and somebody digs two feet away and doesn't find anything. Yeah, that, that's one of the aspects of complexity theory: is that uh, not everything is a normal distribution. You've got these um, these power distributions in networks. It gets to what they popularly call "winner takes all," but it means that the the distributions of success can be very uh, distorted towards just one or two winners. Yep, and it's, you know, sometimes it's a market for hits like we see in the, the movie industry, and so the top-paid actors get paid enormous amounts, but there's a lot of people that don't get a regular gig there. Uh, and all of these are sort of strategies to deal with uncertainty. So uh, if we actually wrote a paper about the film industry and how it used to be completely vertically integrated, right? they had their own production, uh, distribution, and ex- exhibition uh, and then when the market changed to become more uncertain, you saw them deintegrate and actually push that uncertainty onto other production companies um, so that the, the big uh, studios became distributors more than anything else. And uh, so that was a conscious way of managing that uncertainty of not knowing what was going to win in the marketplace. Yeah. So all- well, let's, let's go to the strategy you called the other strategy, strategy two, which is, I have no idea where this peak might be. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a terminology for that blind search. Let's explore that strategy for a while. Yeah, so uh, evolution is often uh, seen as a blind search. There's no intelligence there choosing what genes to put together in, in order to create a new human, right? It's a very random process. And yet over time, it we see uh, organisms becoming fitter and more uh, uh, adapted to their environment. So. You know, the question is, is business more of a blind search? If we really believe that we can't see the future, that we can't see where these peaks are, then we're, we're in a blind search situation. So if, if no plan survives that contact with the customer, how then should you organize uh, your strategy? And so we know from biology, biology and computational models that there are better and worse ways to search these landscapes. So, so clearly one way is just to randomly strike out in any given direction and if it, if it appears to be improving things, keep going in that direction. Uh, if it's not improving things, change direction, right? And so that's, that's known as hill climbing. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the problem with hill climbing is, of course, when you have a very rugged landscape where you have lots of peaks and valleys, it's not going to help you to just say, well, we're going uphill because at some point you're going to start going down a small hill and your strategy says, well, I should go in a different direction. But that may be exactly the direction you need to go to get to the largest peak. 
And so you get trapped in uh, the what's known as these local, local optima uh, because your strategy doesn't let you get out of valleys or doesn't let you get out of smaller peaks. Uh, so what happens then is that uh, if you are in a rugged landscape where there's enormous amounts of uncertainty, maybe you need to do a combination of small, medium, and large experiments mm-hmm. as your resources allow, of course, uh, to try and jump you to new parts of the landscape where you might have more success. So uh, I like to think of startups as sort of little experiments. You know, they're sort of one-shot experiments, or depending on how long their runway is, they could be a dozen experiments or two dozen experiments, but it's certainly not an infinite number of experiments before investors uh, pull the plug, right? Right. And so this is what you're seeing the big... uh, pharmaceutical companies doing they're giving resources to companies to go and try these experiments on new drugs and then buying the one that seems to to come up with the blockbuster but the reality is the majority of them are not going to be that company and so so but what they're effectively doing is exploring the landscape by doing these combinations of small medium and large experiments yeah that crank we talked about in the garage who's doing this crazy idea it's just an example of searching, making a big jump on the landscape to a place that not a lot of people are exploring. May work, it may not. Yeah. You know, so we're skeptical of those big jumps, but doesn't mean that they can't work out. So this, this metaphor of searching, searching around the landscape, mm-hmm. it kind of implies that you, you, you never find, right? You never, you never finished. You're always searching. And you and I had mentioned the uh, the NABC innovation methodology you mentioned it in a paper that you sent me and we've had Kurt Carlson on the podcast talking about uh, NABC which is identifying the need developing an approach making sure the benefits exceed the cost and, and keeping an eye on competition and Kurt said you never actually find the N you never understand the the customer need in total or in completion, in in 100% terms, you're always searching because it's always changing. Mm-hmm. Um, so you need to do the deep analysis, but you also need to to keep moving. So that sounds like the search for the peak, the search for the customer need. Is, can I conflate those two? Yeah, I mean, uh, for those listeners that aren't familiar with the model, NABC stands for uh, N is the customer need, A is your approach. B stands for benefits and C stands for competition. So uh, to the degree that all of those things are in flux, uh, I think this is what the landscape metaphor tells us, that they will be in flux, that needs are going to be changing, your approach needs to be tweaked, the the benefits that you're providing to customers are going to have to change, and the level of competition is going to rise and fall as well. And so uh, often it's, you know, this is pushed as a model where you you work through several iterations to get to that launch product. But as you say, I think the process never ends. And I think one of the key takeaways from this approach is that you go into there thinking this is not a one-shot deal. This is a marathon. Business is is a marathon. It's not a, you know, it's not a battle. It's a war that's going to be fought every day, never ending war. Uh, and so this is sort of why I'm a little critical of military metaphors of business because it, it assumes that you can win or you can lose the war, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think business is much more akin to an evolutionary process. You know, this, this doesn't make sense to talk about the winning species, right? 
it's a, this species has survived for 400 million years, so it's doing pretty well. But doesn't mean it will be won't be extinct tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. But all of this does for me, Steve, is is it changes the mental model, as as you implied there, that the mental model has to be constant change, constant striving, constant looking, being prepared to move in a different direction. You've got to consolidate that with your available resources. You can't do everything. Um, you've got to figure out if you've got a knowledge corridor that's that's got some uniqueness to it and whether that's useful. You've got to keep the consumer or the customer in mind because they're constantly changing. Mm-hmm. And as you say, this whole landscape is dancing. So I think if you take that mental model, it would really, really change the way you think about uh, entrepreneurial businesses of any scale, just constant change and you know, planning of any kind just doesn't fit that mental model. So maybe uh, let's let's have you wrap up there. What what should entrepreneurs do or think or feel, or what should be their mental model in this in this dancing landscape? I, I think the the takeaway is that your work is never done here. That there's always something to do, you know, and it's it's not just you know. Bro- launch a product and sit back and relax and count the dollars as they roll in. Uh, business is something that you have to get out there and do every day and adjust every day in order to stay relevant, I think. And uh, Henry Mintzberg, who's a famous management writer, said that every uh, every decade he would survey managers who would always describe their period as the most turbulent in history. You know, things are always changing. It's, it wasn't like this in the 60s or the 30s or the 90s. And yet you would go back and managers would say, we live in the most turbulent age. Uh, you know, the reality is it's all turbulent. <laughs> you know, things are always going to be changing. And I think the, the dominant model now in entrepreneurship is that you are very, very unlikely to get it right the first time. And so even if you think you have a vision and you know what the customers want, until you actually experiment and do a market test and get out there and, and you know, test things with the customer and in the environment, you're really not going to know. Yeah. Even you, you mentioned a, a term there that we all use typically, which is launch a business or launch a product or launch a, a service. But actually, that's an event. And I'm, I'm, always, I'm almost getting to the point where the Events are a wrong way to think about things. It's it's constant motion. That there is no event. It's just it's just process. Right, and process is a lot of it. And I think people, you know, are just surprised when you know there's always change. There's always problems. People are always working on things. And so, you know, one of my management philosophies, if I should ever be in, put in charge of anything, <laughs> if anyone trusts me in, to put me in charge of something again, is I'm always building in an innovation set of goals for for my employees so how are you going to change and adapt as part of your deliverable so it's not just profit or revenue or output but what are you going to do that's new that's going to keep you closer to the customer base and you know i'm I'm a big believer in building that in as a as a just a requirement not as a special thing that has to be done hey we've got to go out and innovate this week uh, but something that's just a continuous part of your of your job description. Yeah. Well, I find this fascinating and exciting. I, you know, we're always trying to build a bridge between theory and practice, and this idea of complexity theory and adaptive systems um, is very stimulating. I think in how you manage your 
your day-to-day and your month-to-month and your year-to-year as an entrepreneur, that, that you're constantly, constantly looking to change and change in the right direction. And maybe you can't possibly know, but you've got to get, gather the signals as, as best you can. I find it very, very stimulating. So, um, Steve, thank you very much for this summary of complexity theory. I, uh, I have a simpler vision of complexity theory now. Great. I'm glad I could help. Good. Thank you very much. Thank you. Economics for Business is a production of the Mises Institute. To explore more content like this, visit Mises.org. And for more from Hunter Hastings, visit HunterHastings.com.